Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. Is the discussion about paid sick leave about COVID-19 or future policy? Can you switch up vaccines for your second dose? Another example of China's influence in Canada. It's all on the way. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Some great news. Ontario has vaccinated over 5 million people in our province. That is almost double any other province in Canada. Way to go, Team Ontario. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to uh, jump into the action. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. All right. Uh, lots of chatter about paid sick leave, uh, perhaps even more than vaccination or, or variants, it seems, uh, lately. Here's uh, a report from Tina Trajani on where we are on paid sick leave. We've heard for some time an adequate paid sick leave program would help reduce COVID-19 transmission in essential workplaces. Too many workers are having to choose between their health and a paycheck. But Dr. Nahid Dosani, a palliative care physician, says the province's big announcement does very little to tackle the situation. This flies in the face of what has been recommended. He and other doctors, as well as politicians and labour groups, they've all been calling for 10 days of paid sick leave. The minimum number of days people are asked to isolate is typically 10 days or, or more. Dr. Dosani says this sends the message the lives of essential workers are not valued. And in a tweet says Ontario's premier giving workers three days of paid sick days after he himself gets 14 to isolate is the epitome of hypocrisy. Tina Trajani, Global News. All right, let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks very much, Scott. All right, lots of chatter uh, about sick leave. Uh, Ford has announced he will bridge the gap between uh, the federal program and, and, and what people are already being offered. Uh, others are saying that's not enough, that should be 10 days. What is this designed to do? Is this designed to be a permanent program for paid sick leave, or is it designed to bridge the gap between the, fed, uh, the federal uh, program and the provincial program? Uh, I think it's both. Uh, I mean by that, uh, they... Um I, I think they're worried, and that's why there was so much shilly-shallying going on, and I'm not here to defend or criticize anybody. It's a, it's a terribly complex issue. I've, I've Intermittently over the years, I've looked at it and studied it, because there are some very good studies out there. Um, in, in Ontario, Canada, American studies, and so forth. And, uh, and the, the worry of both employers and governments in setting the policy is that sick leave can be very, very expensive. And people can say, well, you know, what price is health? And we can't let that enter into it. Well, we live in the real mm-hmm. world, and uh, that, that's just a reality that we have to worry about, um, especially companies, because they have to cover their costs. They're, if they don't cover their costs, they go to business. And it is, well, it's in, it, already sick leave is in place in most large organizations. So I used to work in a bank, and we had very good sick leave. And it's not a problem in large corporations. It's not a problem in the public sector. Uh, federal, provincial, municipal, not a problem in uh, teachers, uh, schools, uh, universities, colleges. Where the problem is, and they haven't been talking about this because it gets so fraught with emotional, you know, um, it gets wrapped up in the emotions of the moment, is that it's um, it's small business. And small mm-hmm. business 
employs large numbers of people, 60% of the total employment in the private sector. And small business are in a, uh, forever and ever um, are, have very small margins, and they are not very effective, uh, efficient. They don't have lots of resources, and it's, it's a killer for small business. It's not a killer for big business. It's not a killer for governments. And but people don't want to talk about that because then they keep saying you know get wrapped up. Why are you talking about money and the cost of it when health is at stake and so forth? And and so I'm that's the first problem. It's brutally expensive. And secondly, I think the fear is that it's going to morph or or can it morph into an entitlement, a very generous entitlement. As and I know there will probably be some people wanting to send me hate mail, but. I've lived in Ottawa all my life, and I worked in the government at one point, and my family members worked in the government of Canada, and, and it, it, it's very expensive, and it can be used and abused. I'm not saying everybody abuses it. Many people don't, but there is significant abuse. Um, the average number of days taken in the government of Canada are about, the last time I saw a study from the conference board, is about three times more than it is in the private sector. So these are the, this is the backdrop to all of this. And, and what's driving it right now, there were a couple of op-eds today saying, well, why now? And why three days? Well, why now? Is because we're in the middle of this COVID crisis yeah. and, and, and the infection rate's going up and we're trying to look for different ways to keep people home so that they don't spread and become spreaders. Okay, that, that's understandable. But to your point, very quickly, Scott, I do think that they're trying to keep it modest right now to give them more time to develop a longer-term uh, more permanent long-term policy uh, and they're worried that if they you know sort of shoot from the hip right now and make something too quote generous you can't take it back once you roll it out yeah every social program once it's rolled out you can't say after whoops we we uh, overestimated uh, or underestimated and and now we got to cut it back we got to dial it back it's, it's almost impossible to go to somebody once they have you know x days of sick leave or a pension plan and say you know what we're taking that back from you it's like taking back wages and that's why wages are economists know this when they study it wages are very sticky downward and this has been studied in jurisdiction after jurisdiction people don't want pay cuts period period and it's the same with benefits trying to take them back is very difficult so if you know you're going to roll one out then you want to start out small, lowball it, until you can gauge the take-up rates, the cost, etc. But they're trying to do this right in the middle of a pandemic, so it makes it very, very difficult. And uh, and as I said, it's, it's it is it is very expensive. And I'm talking after the pandemic is over, when you look at the cost of sick leave across the private or the public sector, this is not a trivial program. This is a program that costs in the billions and billions and billions of dollars. It seems that this all started, though. It was all about the pandemic. It was all about making sure that uh, that uh, people are taken care of and that the, we uh, restrict the spread of this virus. Yeah. Um, but now we're talking about, well, what happens after September 26th or when this expires? And it's, well, that's politics. That's a, an election platform. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to run for politics, go ahead. We'll have this discussion at the next election. But it seems to me that, that, that even doctors are trying to ram through a policy here uh, that isn't, necessarily directed at COVID-19, it's directed at policy they want to see in the future, which is That's, fine. I get that. But yeah. I think we're conf- they're confusing the public here and trying to ram through, uh, you know, their, 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 their policy that isn't really directed at the, gro- at the global pandemic and getting through that, which is what this is all about. 
that's been my interpretation independently of yours. Uh, it's just for your listeners, we did not collaborate or talk about this before going on air. Um, I have noticed in this um, uh, pandemic that doctors have become much more um, aggressive, much more interventionist. I just, I have that policy. written down. I have that written down, Ian, as a question. Doctors as politicians. That's yeah. what we're seeing now. And again, yeah, that's great, but take and, off and, the stel- telesc- uh, stethoscope and go run for office. Yeah. You're, I mean, historically, um, the you know doctors you know did medicine, they practiced medicine, they treated their patients, but they didn't get too much into policy. But uh, I've noticed that in the last little while, they've become more and more involved in policy, and um, and, and 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 you know advocating policies that, that go far beyond the pandemic. So where this mm-hmm. is going to go, yet to be determined. But it's it's um, it's it's something that troubles me because. As you just said, if you uh, have such strong views, then take a leave of absence and run into politics and say, here's my platform, and these are my credentials. Uh, you know, instead of using the medical, you know, people are listening to the doctor saying, well, he's the he, she is the doctor, and they're, treating, they're looking at the doctor as a doctor, not as a politician with a platform. And, mm-hmm. and so there's a bit of a conflict of interest there, I think. Uh, what should Ontario do here? How do they get themselves out of this? I, I think that the provinces, it's not just Ontario, actually. This is an Ontario, a Canadian problem, and it comes back to health care. I've been uh, arguing in my media and my presentations. I've done a couple just in the last two weeks. Our, our biggest crisis is not the pandemic. Uh, people will disagree with me. That's okay. I think our biggest crisis is health care, and it's going to continue mm-hmm. long after the pandemic is over because we're aging and we're going from 12% over 65 to 25%. People would say, so what? Well, if you look at the data, hard data from StatsCan and CHI-HI, Canadian Institute of Health Information, statistical agency of the government of Canada set up by Paul Martin, when you turn 65, I'm guilty, <laughs> your consumption, average consumption per person over 65 skyrockets. And when you go 75, it just goes vertical upward. And by the time you hit 85, the average person 85 and over is consuming $25,000 per person per year. And, and so this is part of this healthcare question. Who's going to pay for it? Is it the feds who have a lot more fiscal capacity or is it the provinces? The provinces have to look after social welfare, social assistance. They have to look after education, primary, secondary, and universities and colleges. And they have to deal with the monster in the room. That's what Jeffrey Simpson called, the journalists called it, and that's health care, which is uh, approaching 50% of the totality of provincial spending. And, and sick leave is closely correlated, as we are now discussing, to the cost of health care. And so I think it's part of a bigger conversation that's going to have to take place between the provinces on the one hand and the federal government on the other because they've got a lot more fiscal capacity and the bills are just going up, up, up on the provinces. And as the PBO has said, two-thirds, roughly two-thirds of our, our provinces are financially unsustainable in the medium term. How do you think this global pandemic is going to change policy here in this country, in this province? Um, I, I appreciate that question. I've been I've been going on some Zoom um, and um, and uh, on this very question. And and there's going to be adapt- adaptation. 
human beings, as you and I have discussed, are remarkably adaptable to everything. You know, UK exited Brexit and everyone said, doom, gloom, exit, the Britain's finished. No, no, people adjusted, companies adjusted, found new markets, etc. What's going on in healthcare, I think, telemedicine, and, and, and as somebody who has a doctor, meets a doctor every few months because of my arthritis, I'm very aware of this. The days of going off to the hospital for a routine evaluation, other than blood tests and x-rays and MRI scans, where they don't have to scan you, where they just talk to you, those days are gone. Well, that's mm. going to transform medicine, where you will talk to your doctor over the phone or maybe on Zoom, who knows, but you will, the idea you go off to the hospital and park your car in the parking lot and wait in the waiting room for half an hour or an hour just to, for a routine checkup, I think those days are gone. And that's going to free up a lot of space. It's going to have an impact on all those administrative support staff. The doctors will still be needed. The nurses will still be needed. But there's a lot of administrators there who are just managing all those appointments of people sitting in the room. It's going to have an impact on them. It's going to have an impact on the way we use space in a hospital. So I actually think these changes are positive. I think it's going to lead to better medicine, and I'm saying this as a patient, not as a doctor. I'm not a medical doctor, but I have an intimate familiarity because of my arthritis and going there for tests and x-rays and, you know, rheumatologists examining me and so forth. And it is, we are going to see, I believe, a very significant, for the better, a change for the better, our healthcare is going to become more efficient, more effective, and then you'll only go and see the doctor on an exception basis when they literally have to poke you or prod you or grab you or, you know, <laughs> feel your joints yeah. or something, uh, yeah. or they have to uh, insert an instrument into you of some sort. <laughs> you All right, we get it, Ian. And this is going to change how we think about medicine and our relationship with the doctor. It's going to change the funding model, as some doctors have said in some Zoom presentations I've seen in Ottawa. Very senior doctors have said, this is going to change the whole way we finance healthcare because it was based on how many patients did you see today. And, and so there's, I can't even anticipate all the changes, but I do believe, I do believe, Scott, that there's going to be very significant changes. And I'm, as a consequence, and I'm not Pollyanna here, I think, I was very worried for the last five years. I knew we were all getting older, and I was going, how are they going to handle all these older people? Well, I think this, in a weird, weird way, the COVID was going to generate benefits in the sense where it's going to force a cause, a restructuring of health care, and it's for the better because we won't have so much wasted uh, resources, wasted trips to hospitals to sit for an hour to see the doctor for literally two to five minutes, and then you go home and nothing really changed because they could have done it over the telephone. Uh, and so we're going to see changes, more targeted me- medicine, more focused medicine, uh, more telemedicine. And, and, of course, people in remote communities and, and smaller towns where you can't have a big fancy hospital out in the small towns are going to be able to access those big-time specialists remotely. And so I think it is going to lead to changes. It will be more virtual medicine, not completely, but more virtual and when you do go to the hospital, it'll be more for with me. I'm only now going to the hospital once a year to get x-rays and, and, you know, scans of my joints and that sort of thing. And otherwise, I don't have to go there anymore on a regular basis. 
All righty, and so uh, we only got a few seconds left. This system regarding paid sick leave, uh, where is this going? What's happening? What happens I think next? it's going to be institutionalized because people have realized the, the gaps in the system. I do think it's going to end up becoming permanently a joint responsibility between the feds and the province, where the province may say, okay, we'll pay the first five days and anything over that, you pay. A shared cost program similar to health care, Medicare itself. Hmm. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. Commentary is coming up. Do you think once this pandemic is over, we will see a whole pile of doctors running for politics? After watching over a year of doctors on the daily news, I have a hunch we will. What political party isn't going to want to cash in on that image and identity? It appears there are two types of doctors giving us their advice in the media. One, the doctors who stay neutral and offer their academic opinion on the issue. And two, the doctors who use it as an opportunity to sell their occupation's political agenda and support their favorite party while slamming the other. I guess there's nothing wrong with that. However, there are many academics who care little beyond their one-dimensional view of their area of expertise. A good example... Look at Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia, who everybody loves, despite her not wanting to mask her students in class until just this past Easter. Doug Ford opponents would have had his head for such a move. A great leader is someone who can digest all of the experts' advice and then make a difficult call, most often while disappointing many. You have to be able to manage during a crisis as well as sunny ways. I'm Scott Thompson. More good news. Uh, Ontario, province of Ontario announcing they have injected 5 million doses into Ontarians' arms uh, since this all started. So that's uh, quite a bit, quite a great milestone and almost double the closest. Um, Quebec after that with uh, 3 million, BC uh, 1.9 million. So slowly but surely we are making progress. Uh, that is for sure. There's been lots of chatter around the vaccine and around pregnancy and, and do you get it? Do you not get it? Also, what happens afterwards, breast milk and such? What, how, how does this affect unborn children or those in their early years of life? Let's bring in Dr. Uh, Martha Fulford, pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you very much. So what do we know about COVID-19 and pregnant women, uh, especially in and around the vaccine? What do you recommend? What What does the science tell us at this point? So the, we do know that uh, overall, younger women are less likely to have severe disease. However, if a pregnant woman does get COVID, she is more likely to have a rougher and more severe course. And this would be particularly true for a woman who already has some of the other underlying risk factors for severe disease, such as obesity, hypertension, diabetes. So the, uh, in general, we are uh, recommending the vaccine, particularly, as I say, for women who are who are, have some high-risk uh, factors already, but also who are more likely to be exposed. So if a woman is all by herself in her home and unlikely to get it, you, 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 it's maybe a little bit of a different risk conversation than for mm. women who are more likely to be exposed. Uh, in the United States, we already have over 35,000 pregnant women 
uh, who have been vaccinated with no signal that is at all dangerous in pregnancy. And we are tracking it in Canada. And again, everything we have seen points to this vaccine being safe in pregnancy. So uh, uh, away from the vaccine, what about mothers who who fall victim to COVID-19 and uh, who are pregnant? Uh, what does that mean for baby? What does that mean for mother if someone comes down with this while expecting? Well, the, the, the good news is that most women will do fine because they are generally younger and, and healthy. But certainly we are seeing more women admitted to our intensive care units who are pregnant. Uh, there is uh, immune modulation in pregnancy, so women aren't more likely to get an infection. But it is possible, and, and we certainly have, are seeing it with COVID, and we certainly see it with influenza. If a woman does get an infection while pregnant, uh, she is more likely to have a, a, a really severe course. So while the numbers are still low, there is a higher risk of ending up in the intensive care unit if you get it while you're pregnant. So if mom has it, then baby has it? Uh, is it possible no, for a baby to be born with this? No, no, we're not seeing that. We don't see a transplacental passage of the virus. Hmm. But any woman who is critically ill, who has a high fever, who has to have life support, clearly that's going to have a very problematic uh, effect on the pregnancy. We're much more likely to have preterm uh, delivery. We're more likely to have problems uh, with the course. She's more likely to require an emergency cesarean section, probably when, when the baby is still very early. So even though the baby uh, itself isn't necessarily affected by COVID, so the baby won't be born with COVID, there are still some significant concerns uh, about having a woman critically ill while she's pregnant. Uh, but at this point, as you've just said, it doesn't appear that it passes from mother to baby uh, while in the womb. Not the virus, no. no. Okay, so the now let's... Do. <laughs> Okay, let's. My next question. Let's talk about that. Yeah. How, how explain what that means? Antibodies for COVID nineteen found in breast milk after vaccine. What does that mean? Yeah. So uh, the human body is fascinating. So the babies are protected both in utero. So so while the woman's pregnant, uh, antibodies from the mother cross into the baby via the placenta, and so babies are already born with some of the antibodies that the mother has so that will give uh, the, the child protection for usually. About the first six months of life, and this continues with breast milk. So breast milk is a very complicated uh, fluid. It's got the nutrition, but it also has other uh, factors in it. There are antibodies, there's some anti-inflammatory agents, there's growth factors. They're actually probiotic, I and mean, they're good bacteria in breast milk as well that help uh, the, the baby's uh, gut uh, mature properly. And so which is one of the reasons why uh, when when it's possible for a baby to be breastfed, we strongly encourage it, and at least for the first six months of life, if not longer, because we know it does actually uh, give protection via the antibodies. So uh, that is uh, uh, without vaccine or, or, or uh, the, the disease itself and antibodies moving through. What about when a mother becomes vaccinated? Uh, is that, again, separate from uh, baby? When baby comes out, is baby uh, immune as well? Are they, are they protected? Yeah. Yes. And in fact, we actually strongly encourage uh, vaccination against certain infections during pregnancy. And the two examples in Canada are actually uh, influenza and the vaccine against whooping cough, against pertussis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for example, a pertussis one, we, we 
all women when they're pregnant should get a booster at, at around the 27 to 32 week mark because this has been shown to the antibodies cross into the baby and the babies are protected for the first six months of life and it, it really is really very effective and mm. those are the babies that are too young to be vaccinated and the early studies with the COVID vaccine are showing the same thing that there is uh both transplacental but also postpartum uh, passage of antibodies to the baby. And so this sort of what we call passive immunity uh, does actually uh, protect infants. So if mother vaccinated, traces of that will be in baby. Is that accurate? Correct. Yes. Uh, what about hesitant- antibodies? Yeah. Right. So what about hesitancy around pregnant women getting, you know, obviously this is an incredible anxious time for for any parent, any woman who's going through this, but then you add in the the complexities of a a global pandemic. What about hesitancy around uh, pregnant women and vaccines? Uh, How have you addressed this? So it is, again, it's always a very individual conversation about exactly what somebody's concerned about. We have a lot of experience giving vaccines in pregnancy, and any uh, vaccine that we call an inactive vaccine, we, we know uh, can be administered in pregnancy with no concerns. They do give protection. This is different from live vaccines. That's a whole different conversation, and none mm-hmm. of the vaccines we're discussing right now fall into that category. So I think it's really, again, the individual woman's risk, What's her chance of being exposed? Does she under, have other underlying risk factors? But it, but it's trying to protect the woman in the best way we can uh, to have as safe a pregnancy as possible. And I think for when, I, when I have these conversations with, with my pregnant patients, because I, I do see uh, this group of women as well, uh, I, I also talk about the experience that we have we try to answer their questions. I think what is reassuring is that vaccines in pregnancy particularly uh, are, are I mean, we have lots of experience with vaccines in pregnancy. There's nothing about these particular vaccines that raise any red flags in my mind in terms of being concerned uh, in pregnancy. But most important, they are astonishingly effective at preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and you know, the worst outcome, which is death. I mean, they're really... Uh, it's amazing how quickly uh, these have been developed and how, how safe they've proven to be and, and effective. So I would, I don't like putting somebody off when they're hesitant. I prefer to actually have that. So in your case, what are your concerns? You address it very individually. I think that's often, the for me, the best outcome is to simply say, in your case, what are your concerns and how we can address them in terms of reducing your individual risk and, and answering your particular questions. Is there any, uh, you know, I almost hate to ask this, but you know it's out there. Is there any, is there one of uh, brands or types of vaccine that are better for pregnant women? Is there one you would recommend over the other? Or is it like any, uh, the information we've heard, the, the, the first one, the first one you can get is the best one? Yeah. It, uh, at the moment, so it depends a little bit on the age of the woman, of course, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of which would even be approved. The uh, United States data uh, that we have where they, they have the information on almost 35,000 uh, pregnant women who have received it were all with Pfizer. The United Kingdom has uh, more data with the AstraZeneca. Both uh, are very reassuring in terms of, of safety and pregnancy. 
Um, in regard to, obviously, we have supply issues here in Canada. We're extending the the time between the first and second dose mm-hmm. in order to get uh, as many people vaccinated as we possibly can. Uh, obviously, there's questioning around the efficacy of vaccines while waiting that long. Have we vaccinated anyone with with any of these? And 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 then done, are we doing research after one month, two months, three months, four months? Because we're we've been doing this for almost a year now. Uh, do we not know how long these last yet before we're getting the second dose? So the studies are showing pretty robust antibody presence even at the six month mark uh, in people who are uh, otherwise sort of healthy in terms of immune systems. Uh, the patients where we would uh, shorten the the interval are those who are truly immunocompromised, and those are people who uh, are maybe having a bone a bone marrow transplant who are on really heavy doses of chemotherapy where their uh, immune system isn't going to be as robust. But even after the first dose, we're seeing uh, the, the vaccines are about 80% effective at reducing uh, severe disease. The uh, issue with the dosing intervals, you can't do it too soon. So there's a minimum dosing interval. So you can't go shorter than that. But any vaccine or, or almost all vaccines where we give a booster, the second dose, the timing of the second dose is more flexible. Uh, and But do we know anything about the duration yet? Do we have any data yet that says, you know, is it leveling off? We, we, is it we, not? We, no, we know at the four months you still have antibodies and you'll still get a good boost yeah. effect. Uh, but it's kind of too soon to say six months, eight months, 12 months. We've only really started vaccinating people in December. I know it feels like, a, like an eternity. But strictly speaking, it hasn't been that long. And so uh, are people gathering this information? Very much so. Very much so people are measuring and, and, and trying to get a sense of, of the effectiveness. Because for some people, for example, uh, younger adults or teenagers, they may only need one dose. Uh, this is uh, They have a, a very robust immune system. So a lot of the studies are exactly that. It's how good is that first dose and how long does it last? So, yes, those studies are, are people are tracking that. Is it safe to say it'll be a year before we figure that out, just simply because real-time data? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what about uh, different types of vaccine for the second dose? If you got a Pfizer, can you get an AZ? If you got an AZ, can you get a Moderna? Any sort of data on if we have to keep with the same type of a vaccine, and again, we have two different types here. You've got the R, uh, MNRA and, and the yeah, bio yeah. vaccines. Can you mix yeah. the two? Can you mix ones from the same category? Do we know anything there? We're studying that. I know that, that there's a study right now in the United Kingdom looking at the AstraZeneca and as a first dose and then the mRNA as a second. It's actually a very intriguing concept because there's a lot to suggest that it might not just be safe, but almost desirable to do that because if they trigger slightly different parts of the immune system by, by priming your immune system uh, to produce antibodies against one of, of, say, one of the spike proteins and then a slightly different one for another, you might actually get a more robust immunity. We don't know, but, but the hypothesis or, or the rationale for checking this out seems to me very sound. Uh, AstraZeneca, for example, seems to... Uh, stimulate uh, what we call the T-cell mediated part of our immune system, the, the cellular immunity, a little bit more robustly, whereas the mRNA are more humor antibody. And so mixing the two might well actually give a more robust uh, response. So I think we don't quite know yet because, again, it's 
even though it feels like an eternity, it's still actually only been a few months. But this mm. is very actively being looked into is, is what, number one, is it safe to mix and match, which I think the answer would be yes, it's safe. But not just equally effective, but even maybe more effective, and that is very much being looked into. There's sort of two different issues here, mixing all of them, uh, whatever the different type it is, whether it's uh, a, an mRNA or uh, or the standard uh, traditional yes. type of vaccine. Uh, you would assume you could mix like an AstraZeneca and a Johnson & Johnson because they're sort of the same as, you know, and mm-hmm. then mix a Pfizer and Moderna because they're kind of the same. Yeah. So that all, almost seems like one experiment and then another one <laughs> combining the two different types of vaccine. It does, yeah, yeah. There are other... Uh, precedents for this. So, for example, there are four different types of vaccines against hepatitis A, and you can absolutely get one and then a separate one as a booster. So it's not the, the sort of what we call, um, uh, well, the term is heterolog- uh, heterologous boost, but, but so using two different vaccines is, is not unheard of. So the asking this question seems very reasonable and looking into it properly is also very reasonable. We don't want to just assume it's okay, but there's no reason not to uh, think it would be fine. But for me personally, the thing I find most intriguing is actually mixing a viral vector vaccine with one of the mRNA ones, simply because mm. it, it may it may end up giving us even better immunity. So that that's, I think, studies to watch for and see what the results show. Two different approaches. Very much so. Um, so, and again, I, I know this is all way too early to tell, and I'm asking you questions that we just don't have the answers to yet. But considering, uh, you know, we've already heard Pfizer come out and say they're going to, you know, patients are going to need or, or users are going to need a booster of sort. Uh, do we know whether yet whether this is going to be like an annual flu shot sort of thing, or will there eventually be a vaccine similar to a measles or any of the other vaccines that we get or what have you that, you know, once you get it, that's it, you're, you're, you're safe? I think it's far too early to say that. What is clear right now is that the current vaccines are very effective against the variants that are circulating in Ontario. And the reason I'm saying that is the the group of people that have been uh, vaccinated uh, very uh, comprehensively are our long-term care residents. Yeah. And we are seeing no outbreaks in the long-term care. And so if, if there were, if the mutants or if these variants were, were escaping the vaccine, we would be starting to see increased outbreaks and increased uh, cases in, in our seniors. And that's actually not happening. I think it's a lot of speculation. We simply don't know yet. Uh, and to me, it seems a little premature to start worrying about that. If we can get our hospital admissions, uh, under control, which we very definitely will, and and I, I think actually we're already starting to see that with the vaccine, with the vaccinating of the vulnerable part of a uh, component of our population, then I, I, there's time I think to actually see how robust the immunity is, how long it lasts, because certainly other vaccines against viruses uh, are almost lifelong in their effectiveness, and and for some vaccines like measles yellow fever vaccine, there are other vaccines that are lifelong after uh, the one dose, or will it be more like influenza where you do need an annual booster because of these sort of variations that happen? Honestly, I think it's too early to say. What are your thoughts, and this is totally off topic, uh, sort of, uh, and last question, your thoughts that, uh, you know, way back in the first wave of this, we weren't sure what was going to happen during flu season, and then it, it ended up what happening is because of the precautions, I guess, we were taking with COVID-19, the flu season was minimal. Can we learn anything from that? Well, 
It's an interesting question. Some people say it's because of the precautions, but if the precautions yeah. were, that, were all that effective, we wouldn't be seeing COVID. <laughs> Good but point. there is this concept of something called viral inhibition, where it's almost as if one virus gets in your body and it stops others from getting in. So I actually think it's, it's fascinating because we haven't seen a lot of influenza or other respiratory viruses. And in, in normal seasons, you will sometimes see co-infection. But even in normal respiratory tract seasons where we have a lot of viruses circulating, it, it's significantly less common than you would imagine to have two, a, a person with two viruses with co-infection. And so there, there, I think it's a lot more complicated than just uh, that we're using all these measures. Because as I say, if the measures were, were so spectacularly effective, uh, we wouldn't be seeing so much COVID either. So I think hmm. it's it's very interesting and much more complicated, but there is this concept of viral inhibition where one virus tends to sort of inhibit or, or knock out the other viruses, uh, almost as, say, as if they're saying, sorry, I've already occupied this real estate, you're not allowed in. Mm. Uh, but I think there's going to be a lot of study on this as well. Fascinating discussion, Dr. Martha Fulford with us, Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Greatly appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Despite where we are, are we still seeing opposition to lockdowns, masks, and science? You know, here we are over a year into this, uh, and we saw lots of vaccine hesitancy, and then all of a sudden, ages opened up, and uh, everybody started uh, jumping in line again, and uh, demand gone up, supplies gone down. So is it still there at this stage of this global pandemic. Let's bring in Dr. Karen Zhang, clinical psychologist at the Jurovinsky Cancer Center and an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences, McMaster University. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. Have our attitudes changed from the beginning of this pandemic to where we are now? Uh, has, has our attitude towards this pandemic changed? Mm-hmm. I think there was a study done recently where they were uh, analyzing the topics of um, kind of tweets and different social media posts. And I think when the pandemic first started, the theme of a lot of those messages were sadness, a sense of loss. But now we're seeing a lot more anger, um, a, a lot more frustration in what's going on in, in social media activities. Uh, we can certainly understand the fatigue and the frustration and, and anger there. Uh, that being said, when it comes to things like masking and vaccine hesitancy, have our attitudes changed? Are we are we more compliant now, or are we still uh, a large or a, a small group of us that are resisting this? Mm-hmm. It looks like um, what the data suggests is that majority of people are still very, still very much looking for vaccinations or complying with, um, you know, the measures that we have in place. But there is a growing number of people who uh, are very much anti-mask, anti-vaccine, and I think it really reflects on the frustration um, that people are experiencing these days. As we slowly see more and more vaccine come in, more and more people get vaccinated, and and hopefully uh, new caseloads, they say they're leveling off, still climbing, but leveling off. But all we have to do is to look to long-term care, who obviously during the first wave of this and second wave were, were just devastated. And then as vaccine came in, the push was on to get uh, long-term care and nursing homes not only vaccinated once, but vaccinated twice. They're probably the only ones uh, 
other than healthcare related to them who have been uh, vaccinated twice. Is that not, and as a result of that, we've seen uh, uh, cases in in long-term care and such and deaths go way, way down, like by 96%. Does that that provide any sort of, of evidence for people? Does that help them understand this at all? When they've seen, look, we had a problem here, we're vaccinated, and now look where we are. Mm-hmm. I, I think this idea um, that sometimes if we can uh, help people understand how effective vaccines are by presenting the data, we think that, you know, logically or intuitively, um, that will help the deep- Uh, debunk some of those myths about conspiracies around the vaccine or um, any sort of negative attitude towards it. Um, But what we know actually in psychology is that there is something called belief perseverance. And that is when people have very strong beliefs about a matter, um, providing new information that uh, contradicts their beliefs actually doesn't change anything. It Mm. makes them hold on to the beliefs even more. Wow, that's incredible. Um, What is the psychology of defiance? Is there a power there? Is there something about no matter what an authoritative uh, situation is or or body says, they're going to react the opposite? Mm-hmm. I think it has to do with the sense of um, that cognitive dissonance or when we really kind of identify or strongly believe in something, when we have a piece of information that seems to challenge it, it's very threatening. So I think there's a sense to want to hold on to that that belief that we have because it's so important to us. Um, and we see that in actually previous research when we look at um, even for cult leaders, um, when they make predictions that do not come true, rather than abandoning that, that faith or that belief, the followers actually hold on to it even more because it's so much a part of their identity. Why are we not, are those like this, looking for a solution, looking for calm, looking for peace, looking to lower the anxiety? Because all this seems to do is fuel that. Mm -hmm. I think it's tough. Um, I I think the reality is none of us want this, no matter where we stand in our views. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have different ideas about how to make this over uh, or when this can be over for Uh, Many of us, we see vaccines as the solution, but for many others, that may not be the case. And I don't think the intention is necessarily to add more anxiety or stress. I think it's just everyone has different ideas about how to um, get over this pandemic. How do leaders deal with this confusion, deal with uh, trying to get everybody to row in the same direction? Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the biggest challenges How do we overcome these strong beliefs? What we know doesn't work, um, and this is more even in terms of um, uh, individual kind of interactions, arguing with somebody or challenging them or presenting more facts and data doesn't necessarily change that belief. But sometimes if we can validate their their feelings, not necessarily what they're saying, but the fact that this Mm -hmm. is frustrating for them, that actually may open up more room for dialogue and communication. The second part to that is that if we want to overcome these very strong beliefs, there is something called um, counter-explanation. That is, if we put it back to the person, so if it were true that COVID is real or the vaccines do work, what might we see? And they themselves can kind of come up with the answer, to come up with the information. That is more Mm. effective. 
does any d- does this attitude change depending on supply and demand? For example, when there's a lot of supply and anybody can get it, we're seeing an increase in hesitancy. When there's less supply, uh, we see people scrambling to get it. Does it change the situation depending upon how much or, or, or what the supply and demand is here? Mm-hmm. I think there are different groups of people in terms of um, when we're talking about the hesitancy. There's a group of people that will not get the vaccine no matter what the supply is mm-hmm. um, because they have very strong um, and firmly held beliefs. But I think there are groups of people that, um, depending on how available and accessible the vaccine is, um, certainly I think it would increase the uptake. The more barriers that we have in terms of accessing something, the less inclined we are to get it. Uh, What are we going to learn about all of this through a global pandemic? Is this going to only be heightened because of fear and anxiety, or are we going to learn from this? Mm-hmm. I sure hope we learn from this. Um, I, I think it's it's too soon to really tell um, what's coming out of this. But I think certainly even compared to last year um, when the pandemics first started, we're seeing a lot of changes in terms of how people are adapting or coping with the pandemic. Um, this third wave has been very, very difficult for people. And we're seeing this across mental health services where there's increased volumes of demands. Um, I think lessons learned may be something that we have to reflect on at a later point, especially right now when we're still very much in the eye of the storm. What advice do you have for those who are having a hard time with this? Like, I'm sure everybody is, but (laughs) those that, you know, like you said, it is the third wave. People are, they're spent. Any advice? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's what you said, Scott. One is you're not alone. Um, we're, we're Many people are having a very hard time. I think the second point to that is um, I would say try to notice any simple pleasures that may come along in the day. I know many people that I work with who are having a hard time, um, they would still tell me that, you know, they've noticed um, small things on their walks or things about nature that they really appreciate. And I mm. think during the pandemic, it really is about simplifying and trying to find appreciation or gratitude in small places. Here's hoping that sticks post-pandemic as well. Uh, Dr. Karen Zhang with us, clinical psychologist at the Jurovinsky Cancer Center and assistant professor with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences, McMaster University. Karen, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. Remember when, like, every day we were talking about the United States of America? Remember, like, every day we were talking about the president and something that he had said or how COVID-19 had gone off the rails and it's a hoax? And and now it just seems like there's this calm (laughs) that has come over America. Will it last? Uh, Are there still rumblings underneath that could uh, bring back the divisiveness we saw a few months ago? Let's bring in Dr. Graham Dodds, Concordia University professor and associate chair, Department of Political Science, and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well. Good to talk to you again. Your thoughts on uh, this speech last night. How significant was it? Well, I think this was a big speech. This is sort of the first big speech of uh, Biden's presidency, not quite a State of the Union per se, but uh, pretty much the functional equivalent, a major speech. And also this kind of marks the uh, informal 100-day report card that new presidents routinely get from uh, journalists, uh, political scientists, uh, pundits, and others. So a big speech, and I think by all accounts uh, he did well. Uh, You know, we can go over the details, but uh, one thing is that, uh, as you said in your intro, 
this is a different kind of president. I mean, he didn't offend anybody. He didn't say anything that was too outlandish. It was uh, almost kind of boring and, and normal. And, you know, I think that's uh, probably what a lot of people uh, have an appetite for right now. He made some pretty uh, bold goals when he started and what he would have done by 100 days. Has he succeeded? Yeah, I, I think that in the big respects, he has succeeded. And he, he touched on this at the beginning. I thought he would uh, trumpet it a little bit more, but that's not his style. He, he basically said, look, America is on the mend. We are turning the corner on the pandemic, and the economy is roaring back. And, you know, he did say he would have 100 million vaccinations, and it's well over 200 million. So um, if you're going to uh, sort of assess him on his own uh, criteria, uh, he's done quite well. We remember uh, after the le- the election and then, of course, even through the inauguration process, many kept talking about how much influence the former president is going to have uh, moving forward. And I don't know, maybe I'm not looking in the right places, but it seems to be crickets. How much influence does the ex-president still have? question. I think a lot of Republicans are trying to make that calculation as we speak. Uh, I happen to agree with you. It is almost cricket-like, and I think that's because uh, he's not on Twitter. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of how he was able to stay in the news and, and stay front and center for four years, just these incredible, crazy tweets, several a day, uh, each one crazier than the next. And he's not doing that now. Uh, now he does have uh, people coming to uh, pay homage to him in Florida and to, uh, you know, seek his uh, approval. And uh, that will probably continue, but there are voices that are saying enough. And, you know, we saw, obviously, uh, Liz Cheney and uh, uh, last night, also um, uh, Mitt Romney. Uh, so I think Republicans are trying to figure out just how much they still have to uh, curry favor with uh, the former president. And, you know, soon enough, they're going to have to decide, look, uh, are other candidates going to go for the uh, the office, or do we wait to see what Donald Trump has to say? Um, but he has really receded from uh, the headlines, I will say. Do Americans miss Donald Trump? And by that, I mean the constant, you know, I mean, through, throughout uh, political life, many politicians have to deal with, well, you're, you're not being transparent, you're not coming up, you're not saying anything, you're not meeting with us, you're not doing this, doing that, where it was the opposite with Donald Trump. He was in your face virtually uh, every hour. Do they miss the chaos? And you just seem to notice a different calm over the country and administration. It, it is quite different. You're absolutely right. Uh, personally, I do not miss the chaos I don't, uh, you know, relish having to explain the crazy things he does every day to, to students, to, to journalists and others. Uh, but, I mean, he was entertaining, let us say that. Uh, and for people who see American politics as political theater, um, uh, you know, he was a lot more entertaining. Uh, if you want to think of it as a movie, uh, Donald Trump was a blockbuster sort of Godzilla hyper-action flick, and uh, Joe Biden is... Uh, I don't know, a Merchant Ivory product, uh, period piece or something like that. It's a, it's a very different sort of mode. And, I mean, America is more than just its individual who happens to be president, but that person does set the tone, and manifestly it's a different tone right now. How do you think uh, Joe Biden's address would have been different had the last president not been Donald Trump? That's so hard to say. Had the yeah. last president not been Donald Trump, there would be hundreds of thousands of people who would not have died from this pandemic. Uh, so uh, aside from Trump, America is getting out of a hole that was uh, largely the creation of the former president. Had there been someone else with a better connection on reality, um, I would have to think that uh, the hole that America is coming out of would not be as horribly deep as it is. Um, but, you know, there's another thing about last night was the sort of ideological character of this. Biden, um, although he was a centrist for most of his uh, uh, sort of political career, mm-hmm. um, is articulating some, some big wish lists, some sort of big government stuff. And uh, big
big government has not been a political seller in the United States since uh, the election the election of Ronald Reagan, excuse me, in the 1980s. So for, you know, the last 40 years, you did not find uh, big politicians, aside from Bernie Sanders, uh, sort of saying, we need to spend trillions of dollars. And um, that's what Biden is saying. Uh, many did describe him as a centrist. Uh, why, why this approach? Is he just aiming high, cut it back, see what he can do? Why this approach? I, I don't think he's become a radical in his later years. I think it's because Biden generally, genuinely perceives a need for this. Uh, he he uh, seems to think the U.S. is in a sort of a remarkable point. It has just been severely tested. And I, I think in his mind, it's, it's sort of akin to what FDR faced with uh, the Great Depression, that there's a need for government to step in and help people who desperately need help. And, uh, you know, he's sort of asking for uh, $2 trillion here, $2 trillion there, on top of the $2 trillion he's already secured. $6 trillion is a lot of money. You can do an awful lot with that. You can mm-hmm. help an awful lot of poor people with that much money. And uh, we'll see how much he actually gets at the end of the day. But uh, that's what he's asking for. Where does this leave the Republican Party? Well, you know, there was this rebuttal last night, as there always uh, is in these things. So Senator Scott from South Carolina saying it's just too expensive, it's too much. Um, I think it's hard for Republicans, as it is for any party who's out of power right now, because they don't have a clear leader. Is it the former president? Is it yeah. uh, the minority leader in the House or the Senate? Is it a prominent governor? Um, they don't really have a, a quarterback, a cheerleader. It's a bunch of different people. Um, so there's no one to clearly articulate uh, a message. And until um, there sort of is a leader, until Trump says one way or another whether he's going to go again, they're going to have that problem. So uh, aside from figuring out the, the lingering importance of the, the former president, Republicans are divided among themselves. Some want to play ball with Joe Biden. They think that they can have some bipartisan cooperation, some compromise. Others think it's better politics just to oppose, oppose, oppose. That's the old uh, Mitch McConnell line. So I think um, they're really confused about how to deal with this guy, but he's very popular. Joe Biden is very popular, and uh, Republicans obviously not so happy about that. Why would the Republican Party let Donald Trump make that call and not make that call for him? Uh, I think many Republicans still live in deathly fear of Donald Trump. Um, There was this fear that if you said anything wrong, he was so thin-skinned that he would lash out at you, he would support a primary challenger, and you would probably lose the election before you even got to the general election, that you would lose it to a Trumpian Republican who would uh, not uh, upset uh, uh, Donald Trump. Um, Many of them still live in fear of that. He is still a very popular figure among a good chunk of the Republican Party, and uh, you know, very few have sort of uh, seen fit to call him out and say, the emperor has no clothes, he's in the past, this is our party, it's not his. Um, More and more may come to that point of view, as time goes by, I think they probably will. But uh, with Donald Trump, one never knows. He upended so much of the conventional wisdom about American politics. Uh, clearly, he did have some things figured out that very few other people did, and uh, I would not count him out just yet. Dr. Graham Dodds with us, Concordia University Professor and Associate Chair, Department of Political Science. Graham, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. The headline, Ottawa says it only learned uh, Chinese police ran visa center this year. The first paragraph says, Ottawa says it only learned in February that Canada's visa application center in Beijing is managed by Chinese police. The same month, the Globe and Mail reported the arrangement. The federal government has trusted its visa center in Beijing to a police-owned company since 2008 and has been required to conduct due diligence screenings uh, during renewals of the contract in subsequent years, including 2018. Uh, The government 
government acknowledged its lack of awareness in the documents tabled in the House of Commons this week, uh, as requested from uh, an NDP immigration critic. To talk more about this, the reporter Stephen Chase is with us now. Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you. Again, explain why this is uh, problematic to have the Chinese police involved in uh, the visa center. Well, the government doesn't think it's problematic, but critics have raised concerns about this because this is where people come to file applications to come to Canada. They come there to submit applications for visas to to travel to Canada. Some of them want to get out of China. Uh, They could be dissidents. They could be ethnic minorities who are currently being targeted in this so-called preventative repression uh, so this is supposed to be a safe space where you are supposed to be able to give documents securely and confidentially to the Canadian government explaining why you want to come to Canada. But uh, everybody in the security community who's, who's been um, alerted about this, uh, the, I'm talking about the retired security community, like uh, the former director of CSIS, National Security Advisor, uh, Dick Fadden, says this is, uh, this is unacceptable. You are... Uh, providing an ent- a, a, a focal point for Chinese espionage and, and efforts to sort of break into the flow of documents and find out who wants to go where. And, of course, this might be something the Chinese government want to know in order to stop people from trying to leave. So that's a concern. And uh, it looks like uh, Ottawa did not do proper due diligence when picking a partner in China. Uh, that's one thing right there. Uh, now that they know this information, what does that change anything? There's no indication the Canadian government wants to change anything. It, it could possibly be because they're afraid of upsetting China right now, uh, given the uh, fact that we've got two uh, uh, Canadian citizens locked up there. So uh, they have said that uh, they are satisfied the arrangement is secure, and they have pointed to the fact that other countries, including the United Kingdom, also use this arrangement. But um, they have not explained to us um, how they can prevent people from taking the documents and, and you know, secreting them away or stealing them once they're there. So the way, how the way can... this all started was that we saw pictures of Chinese police striding through this visa center and started making inquiries about why are there Chinese police walking through this visa center. Um, but to answer the question I think you're about to ask is people bring documents into these centers. They bring paper documents. They bring supporting documents. They bring mm-hmm. their passports. Some of this information gets uploaded in a computer to Ottawa, but is, but is left on the local servers for about 30 days. Other information is actually packaged up by the visa center and supposed to be sent to the to the Canadian embassy, but of course uh, it could be intercepted. Should Canada be so concerned about always always so concerned about getting China upset? It seems we can't do anything without upsetting China. Uh, all while we're just merely asking what's going on with visas who uh, people who are coming into our country, which is a perfectly legitimate uh, question that they seem to be getting upset about. Have we become slaves to China? I mean, I mean, where, when does this influence stop? That's a good question. I think the other aspect of this is that um, there was a. It's not a case. It's not a problem now because COVID has basically stopped a lot of flights. And but Canada wants to be regarded as a major tourism destination for Chinese 
citizens. It wants to make lots of bucks off Chinese tourists and, of course, other kinds of visitors, such as students and so on. So with um, the volumes of tourists and other uh, would-be travelers, the Canadian government wanted to save money. They didn't want to have to process this through the embassy. So that's why they outsourced it. And they're probably reluctant to have to bring this back in-house because they don't like spending the coin necessary to have Canadian government diplomats handle this. So it's also costs, right? Basically, frankly, they don't want to spend the money to do this themselves. Is that why they're only finding out about this now? It was outsourced? It was outsourced. It's been outsourced increasingly since 2008. Um, But every time... Um, there was a renewal of the contract, and of course it started in 2008, it was renewed in 2012 uh, or 13, and it was renewed in 2018. Nobody thought to Google the company that was the subcontractor. I don't know, it's puzzling to us um, why they didn't know this. It's puzzling to us by nobody was curious. Um, as you can imagine, what you have in Ottawa... Is it about, is it about not being curious, or is it uh, just being oblivious to it all, not caring? Well, sometimes in Ottawa, Peter doesn't know what Paul's doing. You've got yeah. different departments doing different things. Immigration is supposed to run things, but actually the contracting is handed over to Public Works, which is now called uh, Public Services and Procurement Canada. But so you have different organizations handling different parts of this, and they... Uh, you know, with the sort of that the sort of outsour- the decentralization of decision making over this, you probably don't have uh, the kind of communication you should be having. And of course, what's also really odd is they didn't even think to talk to CSIS or the communication security establishment about this when they let the contract, uh, which is really odd because the these organizations have said publicly in recent weeks that they're ready and waiting to offer advice. <laughs> Uh, where does this go from here? What happens now that, again, this information is out? Not sure. The Canadian government doesn't want to change things. They don't want to um, take this back in-house, I imagine, because of the costs. And they also uh, are probably have a bit of a reprieve on an instant decision now because, you, as you can imagine, not a lot of people are flooding into the visa application office during covid to do this. So I think that they're going to probably wait and see whether it continues to be a public relations problem for them or not. What does this mean for those trying to come here? It means that uh, if you are not, if you are uh, in some way considered a troublemaker or a dissident or uh, you've run afoul of the Chinese government, uh, I wouldn't use this office because you walk into an office that's run by the Beijing police. This is a this is a, the the Beijing Ministry of Public Security, and like something like about three quarters of the staff there are directly employed by by them. So, uh, are they in fact deciding who gets out of China? I don't know about that, but what we've talked about repeatedly is the concern that these people could be passing information to the Ministry of Public Security. And and then that could give the Chinese government the means it needs to stop people from leaving. Wow. Uh, Stephen Chase with us, senior parliamentary reporter for The Globe and Mail. Ottawa says it only learned uh, Chinese police ran the visa center there this year. Stephen, thanks for the time. Much uh, greatly appreciated. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. The 
Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.